Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Dr. Carrie Peters. She is the Vice President at J.R. Peters and the formulator of all products and development of new fertilizer formulas that provide crop-specific solutions to growers' nutritional issues. She has too many honors and accolades to list here, but I will put them up on the podcast page. Carrie has a PhD in plant sciences and a master's of science in agronomy from the University of Maryland, as well as a bachelor's of science in biology. She's the third generation of Peters in the family business, which was founded over 72 years ago. Now on to the show. Hey, Carrie, thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me, Tad. Yeah, I know you've been on before talking about J.R. Peters and Jack's fertilizer and some of the you know formulation process. Uh, today, I wanted to talk to you more about uh, testing and lab analysis. So, tell me a little bit about about your lab that you have over at Jack's. Oh yeah, well, one of the things that I feel super lucky to be able to have here in Allentown, where we make our fertilizer, is actually the lab on site. So like, you know, like I was saying, you need to come visit, but people that have been there, they always kind of say like, wow, this is unbelievable. Like in the middle of offices is this laboratory and it really is like the backbone of what we do um, to manufacture fertilizer, obviously, to make sure we are, are making what we think we are, but also to get like really data driven information to growers out there, like any growers not just growers using jacks, but like people that are interested to see how their plants are doing and how to improve and optimize their their um, crop health and yield. So really depending on the crop that they're growing. But it's a pretty neat facility. It's like smack dab in the middle of the offices and manufacturing. And we just completed a renovation. So the company was formed in 1947. I know you knew that from before. But our facility was built in 78. So the lab was like a monster-sized tribute to the 70s chic, you know? <laughs> so this renovation, this yeah. renovation kind of took us into the next, well, the 21st century for sure in the way of appeal. But we had all these state-of-the-art equipment, and it looked like a 70s throwback. So this new renovation has allowed us to like utilize space better and really be able to um, increase the throughput of the amount of samples that we do every day here at J.R. Peters. It's kind of like Groundhog Day. Our results are out in 24 to 48 hours. And then you repeat that over and over again for tissue testing, water testing, media, fertilizers, of course, and pretty much anything nutrient, nutrient concentration. Yeah. So I want to I want to dive into that um, much deeper, but before we do, something that you and I talked about uh, in previous off-air conversations was the amount of testing that goes into your products, and because um, part of our conversation was about how uh, you know it, when you get a label made, 
you have a guaranteed analysis. And so if you're guaranteeing 5% nitrogen, you have to be above 5%, right? And, and you were saying within a certain range of that too, right. um, in yes. theory, especially on the chemical side. So, um, and, and also that all your inputs are free and clean of heavy metals. Um, yes. I'm guessing or not all <laughs> chemical nutrient companies have labs. Um, what, what have you guys found over the years um, in terms of uh, consistency, in order to maintain consistency? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I always wonder to myself, like, do people know what kind of qualifications their company their, their nutrient companies or anything in life, you know, like anything we put into our bodies, what kind of testing goes on there? Um, for our products, having the lab on site, it's awesome because people always ask, can you send me a certificate of analysis for your finished blends? And I'm like, can do, because that's what everybody thinks that they need, which is super true. You definitely do. But more important than that, we, um, do a lot of QAQC at, at the step before that. So because we house so many different raw materials and make so many different blends for ourselves and for others, we look at the raw materials as inputs. So as soon as they're brought into the facility, they go through a like suite of tests, one being as easy as, is it clear and soluble? I mean, that sounds silly, but like you do that two seconds later, if it's cloudy, you don't have to do anything else you know, you just like reject that lot. But so we look at each individual raw material before it gets housed with the rest of them, because we have some large scale containment facilities, you know, and if you put in, if it's going to hold, you know, 15,000 pounds of something, and you put in 2000 pounds of a lot that isn't wonderful or within spec, then you've just contaminated the rest of your material. So we take it to the step where we're doing these QAQCs at the beginning stage. So then, you know, when it's blended, we know 100% that it's going to come in spec in regards to heavy metal um, calculation and additive value of all the different raw materials for, for the end formula certificate of analysis. But if we didn't have that on site, I don't know what you do. I guess you just like pray that the, the it is what it is, you know, <laughs> the paperwork says it should be this. And you can't always go by that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So I mean, it makes me wonder as a grower, who's using, you know, mineral salts, what questions should I be asking my manufacturer to assure that what I'm getting is a quality product and consistent? Yeah, I mean, the certificate of analysis is the number one key. I mean, if that needs to come in clean so that your heavy metals are going to be within the AFCO minimums, the American Association of Plant Control, Plant Food Control Officials, gosh, that's what it is, AFCO. It needs to be within their acceptable range. So, and you, it's listed in many different states. You can look up fertilizers and see. Uh, to say, I hear people say things are heavy metal free. It's like almost impossible for that. You're going to, you, you always see some sort of background noise by the time you get to a blended, a blended product. So that end product certificate mm -hmm. of analysis is super important. The other questions that I would ask would be like, 
ask the technical support people, like what type of grade material do you use? Because like um, a good example is potassium nitrate. I mean, potassium nitrate is a super important nutrient that's used as a source of nitrogen and potassium. I mean, as a great source of mineral nutrients for plant growth in all different types of situations. There are so many different grades of that material, like, um, and it's, it's under this umbrella of technical or greenhouse grade. That's what you should be looking for. But even within that, there's like A, Bs and Cs of that, that leads to, um, you know, heavy metal content. And it also leads to solubility and appearance and that affects pH. So you can even see some variation in that. So if you could get some clarification from the manufacturer on what grade of at least the macronutrients that they're using, I would, that would give me a big boost of confidence as a grower, I would think. Cool. I, <laughs> it's not my world, so I don't really have a, have any comments on this, but um, no, that's good to hear. Cause I know there are people that are using mineral salts that listen to the podcast and I want to make sure we're not just talking to organic growers out there or, or addressing the concerns of organic growers. Cause it's a science-based podcast. Um, moving on though, the, the main thing that I wanted to talk to you about was these different methods of testing. Um, specifically uh, tissue testing. So I just did a podcast um, talking about soil testing with Bryant Mason, who's a wonderful agronomist. Um, and so we really, we dove into the Malik 3 the saturated paste test and talked about what information on there and how that applies to soilless media. But um, how, how does tissue testing play into this? And why did you guys go that route? Well, as a company, well, the whole company started as this lab and the lab was able to give us connections to growers. And when we saw the problems that growers had, that's how my grandfather was able to kind of figure out, oh my gosh, like I can help them grow by bringing back these blends of, of mineral um, nutrients. And this was back in the 1940s, right? So a long time ago when, when they didn't even blend things together and people were just like putting down whatever they want and had no regard for sustainability or, or anything really. It was just like, whatever. Um, but so we kind of based our whole philosophy and, and company philosophy on this scientific approach and kind of having that connection to data that the plant can, can show us. So mo it all started in the beginning with soil testing back in the day, like true soils with Malik 3 and all of that. But as we moved into a fertilizer company in the 70s, that's when they, they really did a lot of the saturated paste extracts and tried to understand the connection between the nutrients that were immediately available in the root zone and then the nutrients that were... Um, concentrated in the plant tissues and then taking that information and using database decisions to formulate mineral blends to kind of optimize plant growth by forming these like nutrient targets. So, you know, like they back then they were doing a lot of cut flowers. So it was like, how do we make the best cut flower so that it lasts longer and it blooms longer and it, it fulfills all of the 
you know, characteristics of this perfection of a cut flower. And, you know, through the years, all the different crops that we've worked with from vegetative animal in, in annuals to like just regular bedding plants to petunias to corn, soybean, cotton. I mean, you name it, we've tested it in the laboratory and kind of it gave us like this full picture of like what's going on in the plant, what's the root seeing and what gets translocated into the plant tissue. Is there always a correlation between the saturated paste, which is sort of like what is in the media and immediately available, um, and what is in the plant tissue? And is it the same across various crops? Is that correlation the same across different crops? Yeah, I mean, it's useful to have a database built where you can have long-term data. So, because varieties change and like the varieties, like if you take a poinsettia, um, varieties from, you know, the 1940s to something that you see today, technically it's still within the thing of poinsettia, but it is slightly different according to these new traits that they have been breeding for. Very much similar to the things we're seeing in cannabis. You know, you're, you're dealing with the idea of what the original species that you, you had back in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, to the things that are even coming out, you know, each year here as we, you know, venture into this awesome um, crop, you get to see some of the differences. So we've always been able to look at correlations between saturated paste, because in, in the view of our, how we build nutrient targets, the saturated paste extracts gives you a really great like snapshot on what's immediately available to the root zone. It's like the nutrients and, and all of the great stuff that's in the small and large pore spaces of the, of the root zone. And that's what's immediately available to the roots. So just saying that that's what should be able to be immediately taken up and translocated in the young, healthy root tissue, root tips, root hairs, immediately into the plant up the xylem and should be for a nice, healthy, functioning plant translocated into the shoots, the leaves, the growing tissues of the plant that way. So yeah, we've always seen a correlation between using that information and concentration in leaf tissue for, for plant health. Oh, and I just want to add that watering um, environment, uh, transpiration, all of these things are going to affect how well those nutrients are taken up. But, um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so you know, I asked that question because I have heard a couple of people say that tissue testing doesn't correlate well with soil testing. And I, I don't believe that to be the case. And it sounds like what you're saying is that's, there's actually a, a right. fairly strong correlation there that we can one of the things too though is maybe people say that because you do have to take into consideration the timing so what you're seeing immediately in the in the soilless in, in the root zone you know of the saturated paste isn't going to be exactly what's in the tissue right now there is like a time delay so i know people like understand that and they're like oh wait a second so normally we do a tissue test is what was in in the media like five to seven days ago depending on the crop too it depends on the crop and the stage and all of that kind of stuff but there is some sort of time delay that you have to consider 
Okay, can you give me a quick like 30 second, one minute explanation of how, what the actual mechanical process is associated with tissue testing? Like what you're actually yeah. doing when you receive a sample? Yep. So we do like total concentration based on leaf tissue. So people send us, you know, send us several different versions of things like healthy tissue that they're just trying to figure out what's going on and then problematic stuff like burnt deficiencies, you name it, you know, just like not healthy that they're like, holy cow, what should I do? Um, they usually send that in as like a like fresh tissue. So it's wet um, in a paper bag or wrapped in towels or something like that, like paper towels. And then we dry it overnight. Um, that is dried at 80, 80 degrees Celsius, kind of like a dehydrator type thing. You know what I mean? Just to get it nice and crunchy and really get it down all the water out. And then we grind that tissue um, into like, it's not a true powder, but it's like a pretty, pretty um, small kind of grind that's like 40 mesh, goes through a 40 mesh screen. And then we weigh out a certain amount and then it gets ashed overnight. So that ashing process really just removes the carbon from the sample. So, so that's, you know, the purpose of that. And um, it gets ashed at for, I think it's like four hours at like 450 degrees Celsius, something super high. It's done overnight. So this is why tissue testing takes 48 hours because there is like the first drying and then the overnight drying. And then that after that, it gets um, in our lab, the process that we do is um, we digest it with a weak acid for 90 minutes. So that breaks down some of the, you know, stronger bonds and, and materials even a little bit more into a, a solution. And then that gets filtered to remove some of the bigger debris and stuff. And that sample gets run on the ICP, um, which is super useful. Um, we have an Agilent ICP at our lab here at Jack's. And um, that basically gives you within 80 seconds a um, total nutrient concentration. So it doesn't give you nitrogen, but it gives you phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, sulfur, and all the micros, um, and also silica, um, aluminum, and sodium. So, and that's how it's done. Very cool. And so I'm seeing more people talking about SAP testing. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the differences between tissue testing and SAP testing and, and why, why you have a preference towards tissue testing? Am I using the right term there? Do we want to call it tissue testing? That's what I've always heard. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's what I, that's what we call it. Yeah. Tissue okay. testing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you aren't a plant person, then people get confused. But if you are, they know what you're talking about. <laughs> like tissue okay, testing. <laughs> um, yeah, I see a lot of people like at, at our company, we do tech support um, to utilize our products, but also to help growers um, really get an idea of these nutrient targets that they're trying to hit. And we run into some people that, that take into consideration SAP analysis. Um, and at this point, you know, we, we always lean towards our version of tissue testing because we have such a strong, um, 
background and knowledge on how it relates to the nutrients in the root zone and to what's being held in the plant tissue and how to relate that to fertility. But, you know, you do see people taking a look at sap analysis to try and optimize plant nutrition at a specific time in the plant's life, trying to understand can, you know, can they predict the way nutrients are going to move? And is that going to help kind of allow the crop to hit its optimum before it's there? Tissue testing does have the limitation, like what we do, is you're kind of seeing things that already happened, you know, so you can, you can make really great inferences of knowledge on the nutrition of your plant health, but it's kind of like looking in the rear view mirror and making choices for the future from that. In the way of plant sap testing, people are saying if you could, if you can get that information correctly and consistency, you might be able to make some database decisions right away. You know, I, I have yet to see that work well in a, in a successful cannabis cultivation um, facility that, that I've worked with yet. Um, but, you know, I do hear a lot of people are, are starting to lean that way. Yeah, so, the, so the, the two main concerns are, one, there isn't really an existing database that would take in all of the information that we would need because it is just a snapshot. And then I guess there's three. So then how do we use that information to make a data-driven decision moving forward? Um, and then and then lastly, I would think we would have to test quite frequently because that value is constantly changing. Yeah. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, the in the cytosol, which is the water inside the cell, the sap, right? That's what they, you want to try and get a, an idea of what that is. Plant cells are different. They have also juice or water sap inside of the cell wall. Um, so in order to make good database decisions, I would think you really also have to pay attention to how the extraction procedure for the sap analysis is too, um, because you really would not want to get the, the sap that's in the cell wall because that's not movable you know, water of nutrients, sugars, all the other great stuff in there that we want to consider. We really only want to consider, you know, the, the cytosol. Um, and it's hard to know how the labs do this. We actually look at, looked at it several times here at J.R. Peters and, you know, the, the extraction process is something that can be compromised very easily. And then, then you have data, but what is that data going to give you? You know, it could be misleading mm -hmm. in that it's not really giving you the right information that you need to make a decision, but you're making a decision on it. And is that de decision going to be the right one? So it, it just hmm. hasn't been, it just hasn't been around long enough to, to do some perfection. But I mean, people definitely argue this point with me all the time. <laughs> so I'm sure people will hear this and be like, oh, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say cytosol, is that essentially the, the cytoplasm? Is that the same yeah. thing or is it something yep. different? Yep. It's, trying to go back to exactly my botany days. Yep. <laughs> okay. It's basically so sap the... testing is cytoplasm testing. Okay. Yes. 
it's the it's the water inside the cell, the water consisting of water, nutrients, sugars, organic acids, I mean, amino acids. There's even like remnants of enzymes in there. And those enzymes are the things that catalyze those the reactions like photosynthesis. Like there's a lot going on in there besides just nutrients. You know, it's like everything that makes the cell go in liquid form. So, so this is a question for, I think, tissue testing or sap testing, um, mobile versus immobile nutrients. Where are yeah. you sampling on the plant and how does that impact your results? For either case, where you sample on the plants, extremely important. For what we do in tissue testing, um, we recommend getting a, the, the leaf that's most useful is one that is most recently mature. So when you're trying to see the state of health, current health of your plant, you want a recently mature, mature tissue. So not the oldest one, not the newest one, the one that's basically just reached its maturity and that's what you're looking for. Um, and then if you're having a problem situation or you see like obvious deficiency or something, then you sample from those parts. But if you're just really trying mm. to get the like best status of, of your plant's health, it's the recently mature tissue. That exact same um, thought process would apply to sap testing. Um, you could make an argument that um, if you would take more of the tissue from the newest leaves, the merry stems, the flowers, you're going to get some nutrient data that's showing movement through the plant's phloem, which is a different method than if you would take it from older leaves or several different leaves in the um, plant that is mostly xylem fed. So like normally when you bring um, nutrients and water into the plant, it goes roots, xylem into leaves, and then to move it around the leaves, it moves through the phloem. But, um, you know, not everything moves through the phloem. And that's when you get into mobile versus immobile elements. But you can tell both of them from total tissue testing and sap analysis. Okay. Okay. Um, great. I, so, so now what I'm, I'm picturing there is, <laughs> well, my brain was jumping around because whenever I hear the word phloem now, I remember from my botany class that my professor was like phloem equals food. And so I have that like equation stuck yeah. in my head, uh, fake equation. Um, but no, what I was going to ask about was I was picturing. So from like, in like grower terms, the, the large, the most, the, the fan leaf that's like highest to the top, that's f the same size as your other fan leaves. Um, so it's fully mature. So you're not talking about the top of the plant. We're not talking about the bottom of the plant. Somewhere kind of in the, yep. I'm guessing middle to the upper third of the plant that you get that like fully mature leaf. Is that yep. about that's right? That's like your sweet spot. Yes. Yeah. That, that is definitely your sweet spot for tissue testing and cannabis. And that's where when you see some ranges from places, you'll see if they don't kind of say, okay, this is new growth or old growth, and they're just giving you ranges, it's always from that typical area of the plant, regardless of the species or variety. Okay, so I'm, I'm a grower. I'm thinking about tissue testing or just doing more testing in general. How affordable is it? And then how... 
useful is that data? Like, let's say, well, I guess first tackle that first question of affordability. Yeah. At what point does it make sense? So we, you know, we are a full production horticulture lab. We get between, I mean, December and January are one of our slowest because the end of December, I think people are just enjoying life with the holidays and then back at it in January. Um, At that time, we're getting like 100 samples a day. But in the the thick of it all, like depending on seasons, um, but getting into like spring, you know, typical spring, we'll get up to 250 a day. Um, For us, the sample is $46 um, for each sample for tissue testing. And um, I always say, and that price has gone up over time. Like when I started, I think it was, yeah, I've been with my, I've been actually getting paid by my parents since 2004, (laughs) but you know, I've worked there forever. Um, But back then it was like $36 (laughs) and now it's 46. And, um, but I remember saying like, oh yeah, it's the best $46 you'll ever spend to get your, before you start for like, before you start growing a crop is to do a media test, just a saturated paste to make sure your your cocoa or um, your living soil or any combination of the things that you're trying to put together is making sense and is hitting what you want to. And then we see this mm-hmm. with cocoa all the time. I mean, so many people get burned with like cocoa that isn't rinsed. So you have a ton of potassium mm. and chloride in there. Um, but if you would do that $46 media test, you'd figure that out in a second, super easy to remedy, but you have to remedy it. If you put, if you put, um, your, your clones in there, they'll burn up in a matter of hours. Um, so we always say like that $46 is the best crop insurance you'll ever find. The, the thing with tissue testing is you have to be ready to look at the data. I mean, I, and, and I don't know, I guess. I'm just one of those people like, let's just not sample to collect data and never look at it. Let's try and figure out a nutrient management program that has timed testing to points where decisions need to be made. So, you know, for cannabis, obviously they're, they're knowing what you're starting with, boom, that's super important. But then taking some samples at each stage of growth before you're making any adjustments or changing your watering practices or your environmental conditions or your light levels, take some smart data points there so you can see what you're starting, see where the plant is before you made that change. And then two weeks after that change. So really at the end of the day, for people that we are really helping establish their own nutrient targets, it might be 10 samples over the crop cycle um, at, it, okay. at the most. And then when they have their data kind of dialed in, it can be down to like four samples based on how much effort they want to put into looking at the data. Um, so okay. it's not overwhelming so when it comes to $500. Yeah. All right. That, gives, that at least gives people an idea of the cost. And then, so let's say I get a, a test result back on my tissue testing and and we discover that it is low in pick your nutrient uh so many things potassium (laughs) yeah let's say potassium um just because that's a fairly easy one 
from the organic side. So let's say your, your, your tissue shows low in potassium. What do you, what do you do? And how do I know it's low in potassium? Like when I get that result back from you, is it going to have some targets or, or what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if every lab does. Our lab has, um, normal ranges, um, that we provide. Um, and that's based on rolling data that we collect here from the samples that are sent in that we do data based kind of analysis over time. Um, and yeah, it'll say, oh, this is outside the normal limit or it's low, or we have a tech support team. So people normally when they get their result, they'll give us a ring and be like, Hey, do you want to talk about my results? <laughs> and we say, yes, that's what we do. And then one of our tech support team, you know, basically talks it through like, okay, why this is low. Why is that? Is it something I should be concerned about? We spend a lot of time, which I'm sure you do Tad too, because this is what it's all about is looking at ratios. Like, is this balanced? if I make a change in a potassium source to increase potassium, is that going to throw something off that I don't want it to? So it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, just getting the results and looking at them and going, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. What does that mean? Then you just totally wasted your time and money <laughs> pretty much. You know, you have to be able to look at it yeah. and say, all right, this, because of this, I choose to do this. We see it a lot with people that have problems too. It's like they'll, and this is more like, we'll take a, um, I don't know, a petunia grower. They're growing like a billion flats of petunias, right? And they're coming back yellow. So the grower will send all our things and then I get the tests back and, and we say, okay, let's help. And maybe it's, you know, the pH is too high. So it's iron deficient and that's why they're pale in the new growth. So I'll talk to the grower and go, okay, well, this is what we see. And then they'll go, oh man, well, I already leached and I already did this and I already did that. So again, you miss the opportunity to make a database decision and you already did things to mm -hmm. switch the, switch the scenario. So it's hard. It's, you know, especially with a high value crop of cannabis, it's like the last thing you want to do is be like, uh, see something starting and then have to wait. So choosing a lab that can get you the results quick is, is very important for your sanity and your non gray hairs, but also being able to utilize the data and go, oh my gosh, okay, so I would have never expected this result. How do I fix it? And having someone to sit, talk it through with you and make some recommendations is, is really the key. And you don't have to pay a consultant to do that. Like people should do this for you that make products. I know you do and I know we do and I know a lot of other companies out there do too. And that's what the cool thing about being in cultivation of any plant is. We're all here to work together and sometimes that doesn't happen and there's more like competition and this and that and the other. When in mm. reality, growing plants should be a community of love. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of that. I don't know that it works out that way in practice, but I love the idea. It doesn't always. Um, <laughs> but yes, I like you. I love it when people reach out because we want to work with them. And I want to know before they do applications of things, because the hardest thing, like you said, is when they see a problem, you talk about the problem and then you find out they already 
done everything because because when i when i see a problem the first thing i want to do is reduce the number of variables in my garden because then it allows me to figure out what that mechanism is that's causing the problem um, and like when we were talking about potassium back there my first thought was oh it's low potassium well maybe we have a watering issue that's leaching out more potassium than we want out of that soil so that conversation i think can be really helpful and we're not testing just for the sake of testing like we want to make sure that that testing is productive and allows us to make a data-driven decision like you said in our garden ultimately because that's the whole reason we test and not everyone can afford to test you know if if you have a small garden of 10 plants five plants or a vegetable garden for example it may not be practical to do a bunch of tissue testing um no so there's other there's other tools, visual tools that we'll use in that case. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, you have a you have a pH meter, a good pH meter, or a way to test your EC. So there's other other forms of testing that don't involve lab analysis that's not going to give you the same precision of information, but at least they're they're all tools that we can use, I guess, as a as a gardener. Oh yeah, and I feel like if you don't if you discount any of that, the visual factor the environmental factor, the, the whole picture, you're really selling yourself short on how to grow an optimum plant. I mean, I think of this all the time, like now that I have, um, I use Waze on my phone, you know, that, like the, you know, to get around Waze, um, like mm -hmm. Google Maps or whatever, when I drive around, I'm telling you, if that app ever doesn't work, I cannot figure out how to go anywhere. And I used to be able to be really good at being like, okay, I make a left over by that church, you know, and go back this way and know the landscape. And I kind of think of that all the time when I look at people that really dive into so much um, specific nutrient information and, and don't take into account the whole system as a whole the, and how it works together. So I do feel like tissue, media, water, nutrient t testing as a whole is really useful. But if you're not really plugged into your whole growing environment and everything together, it's not going to work into helping you grow your optimum plant. It just isn't. It's, a, it's all kind of pieces to a puzzle. I, I say this every podcast and I'm just going to say it again. So maybe <laughs> it'll just get drilled in everyone's head. The, the way to approach a garden or a plant is to look at what, as a detective, what's the limiting factor of growth? And everyone blames the nutrients, as you know, they blame the media, they blame the soil. But if, you're, if your light levels are 500 PPFD in flower, it's probably not your nutrient program that's causing your problem. You know, if your VPD is way off, uh, as, as Nadia will tell us, then it, it doesn't really matter because your plant can't translocate uh, that, that calcium that it may need effectively. Um, if you have a massive pest issue, as Suzanne talks about, um, those things can, all of these things can create plant stress and manifest as nutrient deficiencies or toxicities. So you really do have to be a detective. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with commercial cultivators where we talk about their grow and they not intentionally, but they'll omit information. They'll forget things that happened. Oh yeah, our gardener applied this or, oh yeah, we've also had a, a massive spider mite infestation. Like, and, and these sorts of things are important data points to be aware of when we're really trying to look at the plant holistically, like you talked about. Yeah. At 
Jax, I mean, the people that do tech support, our tech support team, people that were here and people that were here in the past and moved on to other positions, they always say that the most fun is talking to people and being that little sleuth, you know, trying to figure out like, what could be the issue or how can we tweak this just a little bit to hit it perfectly? And it's a lot of fun. Um, and the background, if people ask all the time, like, how do you get into knowing this type of stuff? I mean, I got my PhD and well, my master's in soil science. So I learned agronomy, you know, from that side of it and then went into mm -hmm. plant nutrition. But you know, you really just have to have like a love for like science and there's a lot of chemistry involved, but a lot of it's investigative reporting. So we need more of these inquisitive minds to join tech support for people because um, it's it's fun and there is a huge need for knowledgeable individuals that aren't out there to like make a buck for themselves and just help, you know, and that's that's what we're about here at Jack's, even though we do make a lot of fertilizer. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why, um, you can't really diagnose a problem from a photo. Um, yeah. it's a deeper conversation. Uh, obviously it's better if it's, uh, you know, accompanied by some, some test results. Uh, but we need that holistic picture to really make a determination what's going on with that plant. Um, these people that you know, and I, I do this on my Instagram. I'll post photos. I, I, I hope people, I, I say this a lot, oh, I love don't it. use You're this as a diagnostic fun. tool, <laughs> but more just a way to get your brain thinking about like what could be a possible source of this um, rather than what the definitive answer is, I guess. So yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fun. It all started with one with windburn that uh, Nadia explained related to transpiration and calcium movement, which I thought was a really fascinating plant physiology yeah. answer. Um, so yeah, that's been a fun thing, but it's not really a diagnostic tool. So that's where testing comes in. And uh, for our company, because tissue testing traditionally hasn't been available to the cannabis community, um, we've done a lot of our uh, recommendations based off of the saturated paste and the Malik 3. And we've had good success with that. I love the idea though of adding in tissue testing where, where people can do that. And I think there's a lot that I'm excited to learn around that side of things too. Yeah. And it's really useful that universities have been able to, you know, do what they are able to do now in, in their research settings, which isn't always like a hundred percent applicable to like actual, like gr each growers is different, but still being able to publish these studies that have been, you know, repeated and validated, it's going to be really, really good for the community to be able to get true um, verified data. So every single year you see all these researchers coming out with fabulous things and I'm just blown away with the science behind it. So that's, it's getting every, like I said, it's just getting better and better. Yeah. So when we talk about tissue testing, how much, you know, you said you're giving a range how much variability based on genetics within cannabis do you see um, on these tissue tests? Because I think that's another thing that we should probably talk about a little bit. Yeah, that information for us is hard because we don't always have, like when we talk about customers sending in samples to us, we don't have the information specific to that unless we're setting up um, research trials that we're collecting that information. 
You know what I mean? So if a, if a grower just wants to get data for themselves, they're going to be calling their sample names, whatever it is. And we won't have any idea what it is or what genetics or much besides, you know, lumping it into this general thing of cannabis. So, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to make comments on the variability because we really can only do what we do with the samples that we get here at J.R. Peters. So as a grower, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here, we probably want to dial in some of our cultivars over time. Like as we take these data points and say, this is a, this is the, this is the reason we test with healthy plants is so if we have like a target that we can say this plant is just vigorous, it's healthy, it yielded really well. We'll call this my target for this particular cultivar. Um, and then we try and replicate that essentially or get yeah. close to that target. That's is that the best way do. to approach it? Yeah, that's what we do with growers. So they'll, you know, they have their phenotypes that they're trying to figure out and they have their like um, varieties that are just like their number ones. So we'll dial in that to, you know, try and establish nutrient targets to hit. Um, and the variability when we do something like that still can be a lot like i mean i was just working with a grower i can't even remember like i don't even know if i should say that what it is but anywho um the calcium concentration over time was so variable and i've seen this quite a bit in in cannabis that there's been many many situations of like almost like hyper accumulation of calcium in the leaf tissue which is just like unbelievable because you don't expect that. But even within like targeted and many, many crop cycles of, of repetition, we still see variability from, for these secondary nutrients. Most N, P, and K are pretty consistent from what I've seen. Micronutrients, they're less variable, but they still can vary slightly. But it's in the secondary nutrients, calcium, magnesium, and sulfur that we see the most like swings within these data points. Um, and again, it's just watching it over time because these are healthy plants that are hitting their yields and hitting every single thing they want to do. And the growers just trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to repeat that again, you know? Okay. So, so you see variability in healthy tissue too. So yep. You, oh yeah. Interesting. So, so that makes me think tissue with just like, Sorry, one little aside to that. That makes me think like when I work with growers that are like, I would like to hit magnesium in solution at 23.75 parts per million. I'm like, well, <laughs> you really don't have to do that. Let's do between 20 and 25 and you're good, you know? <laughs> um, you That's know, because, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, I, I had one last tissue test testing question before moving on to another topic here. Um, and that was getting back to that hypothetical of that tissue test that showed low potassium. How do we approach that in a organic versus a hybrid versus a mineral salt program? Because that I, I assume they would be different because in my head, I'm thinking, okay, as an organic grower, I know there's more potassium potentially coming down the line from my Malik test. Whereas if I'm growing in cocoa with mineral salts, I would think, or in hydro, I'm like, okay, I, 
I'm out of potassium. Yeah. I need to just apply potassium. But what, what do you do as, a, as an analyst on something like that? Normally, and you have to remember, normally I'm doing mostly mineral and hydroponic situations, um, like regular cocoa okay. to, yeah. But um, for, we always look at the total environment. So if we see a tissue is low in potassium, then we would immediately look at, and, it, and, and it's not like, it's like low over time. And you're like, we can't figure out why this is happening. We would look at the, the root zone make sure that there's no like environmental situation that's holding potassium kind of hostage or back or, you know, bound with something mm -hmm. else. So make sure the pH is right. Make sure that they are hitting the moisture content so that they're able to provide a, a nice soil solution to the roots. Um, and then also look at the nutrient input if we're using a, a fertilizer or a nutrient solution. Like, do you actually have potassium in there that you think you did, but now you really don't? And that's the problem. Um, for hydroponics, it's, it's a little bit quicker because you're dealing with water. So you can almost eliminate certain things and grow direct, directly back to your nutrient source. Like, okay, what are we doing and why isn't the plant able to get the potassium that it's needed? So it's really just backtracking to see where in the in the system there could be some issues of concern. Okay, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but as an organic grower, I just want to be aware of what my inputs into my media were at the beginning because if I added, not that I use this product much, but granulated K-Meg, sulfate of potash magnesia, um, I, mm -hmm. and, and it was gran in a granular form, so it wasn't immediately available. Um, I'm not seeing it in a tissue test yet, but I will know that it's, it's probably being broken, broken down by microorganisms, by water, and that it's going to be coming down the line. I might want to be a little more conservative with adding something like a soluble potassium sulfate that's going to be 50% potassium. And I, I don't want to overdo it, I guess, would be my concern there. That's exactly, that's exactly right. You have such the potential in every situation to react and overreact that can almost cause more harm than good. Like in the case that you're saying with the granular SOP, sulfate of potash, sometimes I've seen all that is is a factor of like surface area, like the particle size was slightly bigger than they they were used to before. So like you're saying, it's coming. It's just taking longer. It's there, but it's just mm -hmm. not following the same release pattern that maybe the last time you had more surface area and it was like quicker. So yeah, you, that's why consideration yeah. of everything is so important before making a, a rash adjustment that you can't take back, you know? Great, great. So I had two other topics. Uh, the next one being BRICS testing. Now, I'm aware of BRICS testing in um, grapes and other crops where uh, the, the sugar level of a, a crop provides greater value to the to the grower. Um, but I'm, I'm hearing claims in cannabis around BRICS testing being useful. Um, higher BRICS means that you have a plant that's going to resist pests, which if, if Suzanne was on here, she'd be shaking her head and saying that's not true uh, based on what entomologists are finding. So I'll throw that out there. But there's a lot of claims around bricks testing is this like panacea for like optimal healthy plants. You raise the bricks, 
your plants healthier. Um, what's, what's really going on there or what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I wish I had more like to contribute here, but as a horticulturist that does mostly nutrient testing, we don't really look at the BRICS testing in consideration of like trying to devise the most optimum nutrient health. Um, I mean, obviously when you're thinking about what, what is the cytoplasm, what's that's, what is the cell filled with? What's the cellular water components, you know? Sugars is a huge part of it. Nutrients, sugars, organic acids, aminos, enzymes. They're all in there and and having them balanced together is what, you know, boosts a healthy plant metabolism. Um, is that something that a BRICS test can can say, okay, if it's a higher BRICS test, then your plant is has a more functioning metabolism kind of like a human you know do you want your meta boosted metabolism is that going to be a healthier plant yeah i don't know um i feel that for just making sure the plant can complete its life cycle really having a grasp on the nutrient concentration of the plant tissue is super super important because if you like you go back to your limiting factor if you have one of those essential elements as missing, the plant won't be able to complete its life cycle. That's not the case with sugars, um, you know, but it, it, they all obviously work together. So, yeah, I don't know if that was the answer you wanted to hear, Tad, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't. That's what I, I got. No, I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a perfect answer on that. I'm always open to learning more. Um, I the way I hear from you is it's important that we have sufficiency for optimal, um, plant health. But, um, as I understand it from long conversations with Suzanne and then with other agronomists is there's no fertility target from a BRICS perspective with this crop. Um, it just, it doesn't exist to my knowledge. Um, but yeah. there are, there are people making, basing all of their decisions, management decisions around BRICS levels, which at least from what I've seen may not be, I mean, if it's working for you, great, but it, it may not be the best management tool compared to these other tools that we have, like tissue testing, soil testing, um, things like that. Yeah. I mean, plants have been grown for a long time. Plant and high value crops have been extremely important in the history of our world you know, from the spice market to, you know, the beginning of our history here in America to the stage of what we're in now. Like, and it's, I feel thankful to be able to be involved with, with a crop that's exciting and has all this energy and passion into its cultivation. Like cannabis has really been fun and energizing for, I think our whole green community. But I do feel somehow like we get down these wormholes of like, just making it more difficult than it is. And uh, when in reality, like database decisions, science, quality, consistency, you know, being able to repeat what you do and eliminate your variables of problems, no matter how you're growing, will lead to 
uh, more optimum grow a like higher quality product because you're putting the time into consistency. And if that means you want to go down your pathway of figuring out these little bricks and this and that, that's great. But, um, Mm. sometimes I feel like it's a little more complicated than it needs to be. Um, (laughs) as a scientist, I see it a lot. (laughs) Well, because it is a high value crop, uh, because Mm. it is a medicinal plant, um, and because people, care so deeply about how they grow this plant. I think we see, uh, we see two things. We see a lot of marketing that you and I've talked about that, that may not reflect necessarily the, the quality of the product or the necessity of a product. Um, but also we see, um, we just see folks that want to do a little bit more, you know, you think, okay, well, my plant is this healthy right now. What can I add to make it even more healthy? And a lot of times I think that ends up being detrimental, but you get these like highly complex feeding schedules um, that are product based around, you know, I, I said like there's a lot of buzzwords out there nowadays between uh, amino acids and ferments and enzymes and and, and these things that um, <laughs> may be overcomplicating the process. Um, and and yeah. that's that's my concern is, is it's not so much that you're not going to have a healthy plant, which can happen, but more that you're just, you're spending money you don't need to spend to grow this plant. I, I told you before the show that I was talking to a grower and he was so excited. He just started this new facility at this new facility. Um, going to be using a combination of, um, jacks and, and actually beanstalk. And, um, he's, he sent me a text saying that they're, they're going to save over a hundred thousand dollars on their fertility program this year, which blows my mind um not just yeah. the scale but also just that that massive amount of cost that they're spending for essentially the same nutrients like which is one of the reasons i always push against bottled nutrients is because why are we paying a company to add water to our product yeah. um water when we can do yeah. that ourselves you know we're shipping it we're shipping water around it's crazy so um you know from a sustainability perspective not just for the environment and like i said in shipping water but also for um our, you know, our, our pocketbooks, it's just not very practical. Yeah. So I appreciate, you know, even though I'm organic guy, I appreciate that there are companies out there that are looking at more sustainable ways to grow plants. Yeah. And, and it's important. It's important to, to help people grow their crops. I mean, efficiently, and that's what it's going to come down to because we all need to improve and think sustainably and, and, and not in a wasteful manner. So I'm happy that even though Jax is a fertilizer company, we do spend a lot of time in formulation to to deliver the ratios that are not wasteful and not snake oil, like truly scientific based to try and, you know, deliver what it says. And that's the end of it. So people always say, well, why would you make this fertilizer? It's, you know, because of its efficiency, you're you know, cost in use is like three cents per gallon. You're only using one bag in whatever 3000 gallons. It's like, what if you did it differently, you could sell more. It's like, well, we have at the end of the day, what, what does this mean? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. So we just have a little different kind of mode of operation here in Allentown, PA. Yeah. So, so last topic, and we're already kind of going long as I knew we probably would. Um, but I just wanted to touch on heavy metals. 
So yeah. um, do you have time for that real quick? Yep. Yep. Of course. Okay. So uh, heavy metals, as you know, there's the APCO standards. So the, and we'll see those in the WSDA, ODA, um, OMRI, CDFA, especially um, I'll, I'll follow this standard. Um, states, however, with cannabis do not follow that same standard. They have, they, they have a tighter standard regulation in a lot of cases around heavy metals in, in flour and final product. Um, it appears we don't really know exactly how much is too much arsenic or cadmium or lead in a media or in a fertilizer program to cause a fail because of all the variability, whether that's, you know, like we talked about lighting, environment, watering, pH, all yeah. these things are going to affect heavy metal uptake. Um, yeah. How, so first question, how are folks doing in Jack's fertilizers in some of these more stringent states? And how do we, how as a grower do I avoid potential risk around heavy metal failure? Um, so the cool thing about, you know, just being able to have a, a watchful eye over our manufacturing process is that we get to really, you know, make sure all of our blends are as clean as possible. Um, so for the growers that use jacks, I feel like we get the comment quite a bit, like they have a little less stress on their lives because they know we're paying so much attention to our inputs. You know, the, it's a global market where we're getting all of our raw materials, you know, and as COVID life really put a strain on, you know, the timeline to get things, the sources that we could get things from, um, the supply and demand, and even still today, you, you're running into some issues. I don't know if it's still COVID life, but maybe some of the Russian-Ukraine conflict that is still causing some issues. But what for Jack's, the Jack's customers, you know, we spend a lot of time in qualifying these raw materials to get as little heavy metals as possible into our raw materials. And we see it all the time. Like we have a wonderful supply chain person on staff that's been here for three years. So thank goodness she came before um, and kind of took over from, from one of the longer term employees and was able to kind of really understand how important the quality of our, our raw materials were. Um, and, and that was just wonderful because, you know, we, you could get sources from all these different places all over the world that looks like great product. It's soluble. It matches your pH. It's a hundred percent within spec of the nutrient that you're looking for. But if you went by their paperwork, you'd be like, great, this looks like wonderful. You know, there's no heavy metals in this whatsoever. But if you don't test it yourself, we test everyone in outside labs. We test it in our lab and an outside lab. And we've come back with things with like 15 parts per million of lead in a micronutrient source. Well, my goodness, if we would use, you know, our micronutrients is a package of like, you know, eight different things at a minimum. If every single one of them had 10 parts per million lead in there, you would be over in a second. So, you know, it's super important to kind of qualify those raw materials. And so what I hear a lot, just circling back to that, is that the Jack's growers are happy that they know that we're paying attention to that. And we've had 
um, many, many successful, you know, end products. And, and it's been fun to be involved with people being happy with their success. But, you know, we have had people mm -hmm. fail and it, you know, we've helped them go down the path of like, is it the nutrients or is it other things? And like you said, you hate to mm -hmm. point fingers anywhere, but we just try and help them figure out where it could be from. Did that answer your question or did that answer one of your questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no there's no perfect answer there. I, um, I had a grower in Massachusetts recently that failed. Um, they were growing in seven gallon pots using our soil and also using uh, a cocoa product. And then they were adding, uh, a, they were feeding on top of that with another nutrient, a, a part B. Mm -hmm nutrient um essentially and it was an organic one but they uh, they failed on some of their crop and the variability on the test results was all over the board and it was interesting um so first of all like people automatically blame <laughs> the fertilizer or the media because yeah. uh, it's a very common source for heavy metals um yeah but we do like you said you have to be a detective so like we got on a we got on a call with them a long call going over all their inputs and then we went back and we started testing all their inputs because at the end of the day like and no offense to you i, I shouldn't take jack's word on it i should be testing my product because it's it's um <laughs> it's it's i'm the one on the hook as the grower and i yep. i say the same about kiss organic stuff like when people tell me they've tested my product i good job like let's let's talk about yeah. the results do you think they're high? Do you think they're low? How is this going to impact a crop? Like it's, it's a good conversation because, um, especially in organics, we're, we're going to have heavy metals probably in levels higher. Well, definitely in levels higher than you can in mineral salts. So it's all about management. How much are we, how much is being taken out by the plant? How much are we putting mm -hmm. in initially? And then if we're reusing that media, what, what can we add to stay below the withdrawal weight rate of the plant? and still pass for whatever the regular regulatory body is. And just even since the last time um, I posted on social media about this, uh, we found out that the pH down product they were using uh, was actually causing um, or, or being a he heavy contributor to the overall failure of their crop. Um, and I've seen this twice now with pH down. So I just want to caution folks on that. Um, yeah, you got, the other it, one we something you don't think about, you know? Yeah, no, and I've heard that with P some pH down products. And then also the one we see quite a bit is gypsum sources. People that um, oh. add in gypsum as a, either a soil, soil stabilizer or as a source of calcium and sulfur that doesn't change pH. Some sources of mm -hmm. gypsum um, are, um, you know, it's a function of the, oh my gosh, I'm blanking out, the home building um industry like what is that oh drywall you know drywall drywall is made of yeah. gypsum you know whatever that's called drywall wall, wall board or whatever and um no, you're right it's drywall yeah, <laughs> right <laughs> you know obviously i'm not like renovating anything in my house here but um yeah so it's a function of that and that market doesn't care you know really about the low levels of cat is mostly cadmium cadmium and arsenic in there and um, but then when you take it in those fine particles, you know, and that's back to like particle size and surface area, you can see a significant release of those materials into a crop. So we've seen that in like nutrient charges and whatnot. So um, that's another thing to watch out for.
um, out there. Yeah, all of these mined products, anything coming out of the ocean is going to have some heavy metal load. And so it's just all about managing it really and keeping it lower. And, And keep in mind too, like if I, if I register my product properly as a fertilizer with the WSDA, with CDFA, um, and then I, you can go online and look at those um, levels, keep in mind that's, that's manufacturer submitted. That's not a test that the WSDA or the CDFA did that was independent. It's a lab test that I sent in to a lab of my product. They sent it back as, as a certified analysis, and then I sent that on to the regulatory certifying agency. Um, no one's really checking that process. They're kind of taking your word for it, um, which is scary. Ultimately is a little scary depending on how much you trust the company. Um, but I've definitely seen levels that are different than what is on the test that they're, that's been submitted, I guess, to the CDFA or what people are showing on social media versus what you're seeing in, um, you know, yeah. From from the certifying agency, so. Yeah, and that's that's a shame. That's you know you have to choose to do business with people whose character should be reflected in their their products. So, yeah, it's the same at fertilizers. We we do a lot of offsite testing, and we send it into different state. All the states we have to register our fertilizers in all the different states. Same type of thing, and then they post the results. We do it at an offsite lab and then just send that in. So I don't know how we would mess with that, but I guess you could if you really wanted to, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's just something for people to be aware of that a lot of this stuff is self-reported. The ODA, Oregon Department of Agriculture, does do some independent testing that they publish, which is wonderful. The WSDA has done a little bit of it too, but they're testing like 1% of the market maybe. Um, So we're not really seeing everything that's out there. but yeah, no, I I really appreciate you talking a little bit with me about heavy metals and soil testing and, and tissue testing. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add? Anything that you're really excited about um, upcoming in the next year? Well, I don't know. I love having conversations with you, Tad, as you know that. I feel that sharing information and, you know, Talking from different perspectives really helps everyone kind of broaden their knowledge and growing any type of crop, you know, and contributing to horticulture as a whole. Um, no, from Jax, I mean, we're, we're on it. We're constantly looking at ways to deliver the most efficient science-based mineral fertilizers out there. I always say, like, I can't wait in life till I get to go down the path of, like, a more organic thinking. I, I always like you know, I have a garden in my house, like I do things a certain way here too. But being the chief scientist for my family's company, it's kind of like, you know, blinders on moving forward in this direction. But um, yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been a great 2022. And I can't even tell you, like, I feel like our whole company is just so optimistic to like, see the the wonderful things that is going to happen in 2023 so i really appreciate this time to chat with you and um, anyone that's listening you know i love i love these conversations so thank you so much yeah thank you for your time i uh i think it's wonderful when we can come together as a community at the end of the day we all are super passionate about growing plants and uh hopefully that like you said shines through over 
all the other stuff going on. So, and I, I, I love the idea that you're, you're looking into organics down the road. I would, I would love to collaborate with you on something or, or figure out ways to uh, bring more science to the organic community as we uh, move yeah. forward. So that's wonderful. Yeah. There's a lot of potential out there and I feel like, you know, this is something that just would be a lot of fun to get our brains going in that direction together. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. I, uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. That was Dr. Carrie Peters with J.R. Peters and Jack's Fertilizer. And you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. Don't forget to check out the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab, then Podcast. And if you want to support us or the podcast, we do have a Patreon with bonus content and also offer a variety of soil amendments, soils, lighting fixtures, and other growing products on our website. We carefully research all the products we offer and manufacture to make sure they are science-based and meet our standard of quality. Thanks for listening.